investors can become obsessed with predicting the direction of the stock market, but maybe they shouldn't even try. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Economists and investment professionals can give you any number of responses to the question of what's going to happen to the stock market. But how about I don't know? My guest today isn't afraid to say that. He is Vitaly Katzenelson, Portfolio Manager and Chief Investment Officer at Investment Management Associates, Inc., a value investment firm based in Denver. He's also the author of two books, The Little Book of Sideways Markets and Active Value Investing. Today, we'll talk about how he chooses companies in which to invest. We'll also discuss how markets might be impacted by the new administration and the failure of big trade treaties such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we'll sketch out two scenarios for the future based on interest rates rising and remaining low. It's all about how to plan for an I-don't-know world. So here is my conversation with Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly Katzenelson, welcome to the program. It's my pleasure. Thank you. People really want to know where interest rates are going in this economy, but we're not here to predict the future because that would be a fool's effort, I would think, and you might agree with me on that. What I would like to do instead is sketch out, with your help, some alternative scenarios based on either thing happening, on interest rates remaining low, interest rates going up. If that's okay with you, Perhaps we could start with the idea that interest rates remain low, as they have now for a number of years, un unusually so. And yet, what if for the next year or two that continued to happen? Let's talk about some of the things that, that might happen. How might, in general, you see the economy shaping up with interest rates remaining low? If interest rates remain low, it may be because the economy is not doing well. It's actually very difficult for me to approach this way. It's, so the question is why they remain low. Right. So if they remain low because our economy is not doing well, then the economy is not doing well. If they remain low because the rest of the world is not doing well and our economy is doing better, therefore, you have a just flow of funds from basically from our foreign markets to ours. So we can we can have an environment where basically our interest rates are low and our economy is doing well. That's a scenario, I guess, as well. But when you say what does it mean when the economy is doing well? It basically means that we have probably one and a half, maybe two, one to one and a half percent, maybe population growth. You have another one to one and a half percent productivity. So you have a kind of three percent growth of uh, economy, kind of real growth. And then you have a one or two percent of inflation. So you have four to five percent growth. That would be kind of an ideal scenario where economy is doing well. Today, our economy is growing less than that, while the interest rates are very, very low. And the question is, what would be the natural growth rate of our economy be if the interest rates were higher? And I would argue it probably would be a lot lower. Growth rate of the economy would be higher if interest rates were higher? Well, no, the growth rate of the economy would be a lot lower if interest rates were oh, higher. Oh, lower. Okay. You have argued in the past that 
the demand for goods in this in this economy, such as it is, is inorganic, driven, as you have said, by quantitative easing on the part of the Fed and by unsustainable budget deficits. So, so far up to this point, any growth we've seen, I'm assuming you're thinking that it is not actual real growth based on real consumer spending and real strong underlying economic trends. Well, just think about the role interest rates play in the economy in general. My brother just bought a car and he got 0.9% financing for five years. Because interest rates are so low, he was able to afford a more expensive car if interest rates were 5 or 6%, right? Because interest rates are so low, be able to buy more expensive you know, refrigerators and washers and dryers and houses. So although you know, high low interest rates stimulate demand, but the problem is they also still future demand as well. If, if interest rates rise, we may discover that housing become a lot less affordable, housing prices will decline, and a lot of industries that are basically are hinged on the health of the housing market that will suffer as well. So it's a, the problem is because the central governments globally are have a, such an active role in setting interest rates, we don't really know where the interest rates should be. Do you think we stand the risk of deflation? Do you think we could become like Japan, where we never really get off the floor, no matter how hard we try? Oh, uh, it's, it's a possibility. I mean, it's a, and, the, and here's the thing. I don't try to predict where the interest rates are going to be or where, where the inflation is going to be because I really don't know. And to be honest, you have this kind of inflationist camp and you have a deflationist camp. And a lot of times I find people who are inflationists, they're very convinced that they're going to have inflation. And you have deflationists that are very convinced that we'll have deflation. In reality, we really don't know because we, you can't really look at the history books and say, when we have this kind of environment, we'll follow next was this. We, 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 really, we really never had an environment like this before. So as a portfolio manager, I designed a portfolio for what I call for I don't know world. Like saying that, like as a money manager, when you say I don't know, people usually respect you a little bit less. Because the money manager is supposed to go on CNBC and be very certain and very knowledgeable about what the future is going to hold. I really have no idea. And the, but therefore, I'm preparing a creating portfolio that would do well in both scenarios, in a high interest rates and low interest rates, in high inflation and in deflation. And here's my analogy. When you play poker, the worst thing that can possibly happen to you is that you have second best hand. You, you have a phenomenal hand, but somebody, but, but your opponent has a bad hand just a little bit better than yours. And the problem is, when you have a very good hand, you think you're going to win, so you're gonna, probably going to bet big. But the problem is that if you lose, you lose a lot. And, and so to take it to investing, when you're convinced that you're going to have inflation, you're going to own a lot of kind of inflationary assets, like let's say gold. And if you think if you have deflation, you're going to own, a, I don't know, 30 treasuries. So if you have inflation, you're going to do extremely well if you own those three bonds. The problem is if you don't have inflation, you get annihilated because so you basically have this kind of second best hand kind of loss. And what I try to do is have a kind of middle of the road portfolio where it would do fine in either scenario. When the market is expensive, it becomes more and more difficult, but that's what we strive to do. Well, the only difference between you and the money manager is that you admit that you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> okay, well, economies go in cycles and always will. So interest rates must rise at some point. 
generated, I guess, by the Fed finally deciding that growth is strong enough to sustain them and not to worry about inflation. But if that happens mm-hmm. and interest rates go up, there's a lot of different impacts. For instance, corporations have been borrowing heavily over the last years with low interest rates, become heavily leveraged as a result. What might that do to corporate balance sheets and corporate positions in a higher interest rate environment? So I'm going to answer your question. But before this, we always assume that Federal Reserve will be able to control interest rates. And they were able to do this for a while. But what if at some point they lose control? That's what worries me. In the scenario you described, let's say if interest rates go up in a meaningful amount, you, you, you're absolutely right. You're going to have companies that have borrowed a lot of money over the years and they have a much more leveraged balance sheets. And now the interest rates are much higher. So that's going to squeeze their margins. But also, so you, you have a companies that would have a kind of a, it would impact them twice. So if you think about utilities for a second, utilities, their business model does not function without having a lot of debt on the balance sheet because mm-hmm. average utility has probably a return on capital maybe 3 or 4%, maybe 5% you know, in, the, in the good day. And so they have to borrow a lot of money just to get a decent return on equity. So their balance sheets, their, their business models are addicted to debt. That's, it's not really a choice for them of having debt or not having debt. So what happens when interest rates rise, it's going to hit them very hard because they use a lot of debt. However, and this is a very important point, today investors own utility stocks because as they kind of have what I call bond substitutes. They buy them because they're looking for this very stable dividend payment. But in a high interest rate environment, suddenly the 3% or 2% dividend payment will not look like much when you know, bonds yield 4 5 or 6%. And so what's going to happen the price to earnings of those companies will decline as well. So they're going to have a double effect. First of all, their earnings will decline. And second of all, their price to earnings will decline as well. So a lot of those investors who bought them because of the dividend will get hurt. Speaking of balance sheets, how about the Fed's balance sheet? $4 trillion. Is there a direct correlation between the rise in interest rates and the decision of the Fed to begin selling off some of those assets that it collected during its quantitative easing period? Robert, it, it may be, but I, I'll be honest. I'm just a stock guy. And uh, this is you know, when you start talking about Fed's balance sheet and the consequence of that, I put it in the, in the basket kind of, uh, I have no idea how it's going to play out because mm-hmm. we never had this before to a degree. So, I really don't know. So I, I don't worry about this because I, you know, basically I just say, okay, I don't need to figure out the sequence of how the bad things will happen. I just need to you know what the bad things are. Or, you know, what, mm-hmm. what, the, what are the possible outcomes? Has your thinking evolved in the last three weeks since the election in terms of what's now going to happen in U.S. tax policy, U.S. trade policy and the like, and how that might – again, I, I might be sneakily trying to get you to predict the future, and I apologize if that's what it appears to be the case. But have you, start, have you thought differently about uh, where things might go for your own clients as a result of what's happened? So if you think about Donald Trump, if you divide his policies into two buckets, domestic and foreign, from a domestic policy perspective, he's basically, for the most part, just another Republican president with the Republican Congress. So Mm -hmm. he has a lot of kind of plain vanilla, more or less, kind of Republican policies there. In addition to that, he's basically not talking about cutting spending. He's just basically talking about cutting taxes and killing Obamacare and spending more money. For the most part, it's fairly inflationary. The question is how effective he's going to be. In theory, so you have a Republican president, you have a Republican Congress, they should be able to get a lot of things done. 
The problem is, I'm not sure how effective he's going to be as a politician. And therefore, he may end up being effective or may end up just not be able to get anything done. So that's when it comes to uh, domestic policy. Also, this is very important to understand. American president is not a very powerful person when it comes to domestic policy because a lot of his power is basically been taken away from him or her by U.S. Constitution because there is a Congress, there is a Supreme Court, etc. So if he tries to do something extreme, for instance, he won't be able to get it done because just, but just because you have checks and balances. So the bend of uh, expected outcomes when it comes to domestic, domestic policies is basically neutral to maybe slightly positive. However, that band becomes extremely wide when it comes to foreign policy. And that's where I'm worried the most because American president is extremely powerful when it comes to foreign policy by constitution. And therefore, you don't know if the Donald Trump who ran for president is the guy who's running the country or the guy who gave a very gracious acceptance speech is running the country. And you don't know. And you don't know what the effect of the isolationism and trade wars, I mean, basically what he's talking about is going to do, they really don't know. So this is where there is a, there's a lot more uncertainty when it comes to the foreign policy. But if he becomes the one that he was campaigning as, if he walks away from NAFTA, obviously the TPP is dead in his administration, but if he rejects multilateral trade agreements and triggers a trade war with China, assuming we don't already have one, which some might argue that we do, let's say that guy is president. Then I guess you're worried. Oh, absolutely, about, because it's right. not good. You know, it's not going to be good for our economy. It's not going to be good for global economy. Protectionism really doesn't work because whatever tools are available to us are available to other guys as well. So it's it's basically it shrinks the pie. And uh, so yes, so I would be worried uh, absolutely. And I, I guess also this idea that manufacturing could just be brought back to the United States in exactly the same form that it was in before it left seems pretty much to be a fiction in the minds of most people who know anything about this. And so we, we wouldn't really get a recovery of our manufacturing capability in the same way we had it before, would we? No, absolutely. I mean, if, like if Apple tried to manufacture the iPhone in the United States, it probably would cost 50 to $100 more. And they would be competing against a company like Samsung who, is, who doesn't have you know, to consume manufacturing in, in, in China or Korea or whatever. And so, therefore, Apple would be a competitive disadvantage, a significant competitive disadvantage. So, uh, no, I mean, I, I think the best thing you can do to bring manufacturing back is to lower corporate taxes. And I think then you're gonna have, the positive would be you have a lot of money that's sitting outside the United States would come back to the United States. So uh, that would be not positive. Okay, you lower corporate taxes, you possibly blow a hole in the deficit, I don't know, depending on who's arguing that point. But then he wants to uh, engage in a huge increase in infrastructure investment. Now, how is that possible to do, given the fact that the income would be lo lower, uh, and yet infrastructure requires billions of dollars in new money? I, I don't want to play an economist, because I really am not an economist. But the, the thing, in theory... When you, lower, you know, when you lower corporate taxes, you actually create jobs. So that would grow the pie. The problem with infrastructure spending is that you can argue that if you cut corporate taxes, that you could create jobs and maybe it's going to become neutral to the deficits. But when you try to do infrastructure building today, you're basically going to grow government debt. And when you do this, at some point when the interest rates are higher, that debt is going to be very inflationary for the economy, right? Because you have a larger balance sheet and at higher interest rates, suddenly a much larger portion of, of the 
tax revenue has to go to pay for the debt, for debt, for interest payments. Therefore, government has to print money. That becomes extremely inflationary. Do you get the sense that markets just don't know how to respond to the current situation until the new president takes office? We saw quite a deep dip at the time of the election, and then markets recovered to a certain extent. But is there sort of an uncertainty out there that as to the direction things are going, and therefore we really can't uh, assess where markets are going to go until we have a better idea of what this president's going to do? I think the markets are very hopeful today. So let me tell what I do all day. So it's going to make more sense why I'm hesitant to answer this question. Okay. I, I basically read any reports and try to find companies, high quality companies that would do well in any environment. And I want to buy them cheap. In a lot of days, I don't look what the stock prices are doing. I don't turn on TV. So I'm kind of not watching the markets on a daily basis. <laughs> Therefore, mm-hmm. I don't try to waste my energy on trying to, to interpret what the market does in the short term because it's almost like predicting weather. You predicted weather for tomorrow, and, it, and that effort has a shelf life of about a day. So my argument is, is instead of trying to predict the weather for a day or try to predict what the market is going to do for a week or a month, I try to become a climatologist and, and ask myself, what are the significant climate change in events, positive or negative, and then try to position portfolio accordingly. So this is why it's very difficult for me to have a discussion and try to interpret what the market reaction, because tomorrow market may decide to be down 5% because Trump tweeted something silly. So you see what I mean? So I don't mm-hmm. spend much energy on that. Is this what you mean by a sideways market? Oh, so sideways market is something else. Sideways market is a bigger discussion. So if you look at the return for stocks, you can put them into two buckets. Number one, stock prices going up, stock appreciation, and, and then another one is the dividends. You add them together, you have a total return. But just put dividends aside for a second. Stock prices go up in the long term, really, and I say long term, I'm talking about years, really just for two reasons, because earnings are growing, and or because price to earnings is going up or down. So if you can basically look over the last 100 years, the economy grew, maybe like earnings grew about 5% a year and dividends were about 5%. Then, so therefore, returns from stocks were about 10%, 10-11%, okay, the last 100 years. However, there were a period of time when the stock prices went up 15% plus dividends, and there were periods of times when the stock prices did absolutely nothing for 15 years. And the, the only variable was that the, in the both environments, earnings grew about 5 or 6% a year. But the, what the, the variable that determined that the stock market went up for 15 years or have gone nowhere for 15 years was the price to earnings. Price to earnings is kind of a pendulum. It goes from one extreme to another. So it goes from very low level to very high and reverses itself. If you look from, the, from 1966 to 1982, I forget the numbers, but they say price, uh, earnings grew about 5 or 6% a year, but price to earnings declined by about that much. And therefore, if you bought stocks and from 66, they were basically at the same level in 1982, and you collected dividends. And that's about it. So I wrote two books on the subject. The first one was kind of written for almost my competitors, like a very uh, technical book, uh, Active Value Investing. And then the second book, was kind of basically kind of a simplified version of the first one where I talked about this kind of this phenomenon. And it happened consistently, consistently over the last 120 plus years. So you had a market when you the stocks went up a lot, and like we had from uh, from uh, 1982 to 2000. And then you had a market when 
prices basically have gone nowhere for a period of time. When I say gone nowhere, you had a bull market, like kind of a small bull market and bear market inside of them. But in the long run, they kind of like a lot of volatility and no returns kind of situation. Would you then agree with the view that if you are an unsophisticated or a relatively unsophisticated investor, your best bet is to dump your money in an index fund over a long period of time and probably in the process will end up getting a better yield than if you had gone with some big name snazzy hedge fund? Uh, do you think that uh, often that's the case or not? I don't think that's the case. Before I answer this question, I realize I'm going to disclose my biases. First of all, I manage money for a living. Okay, so every day I come to work saying I'm better than index funds. Now it's point number one. Point number two, the value investment approach in the long run has done better than the markets in general. If you look at the stock market today, I would be scared if I own index funds because you basically own the, like every stock that you own is very, very expensive. So therefore, I think if you are, if you are disciplined and you have a value, a portfolio of undervalued stocks in the next 10 years, not necessarily in the next three years, but over the next 10 years, I think you would do a lot better than you would do by owning just an index fund. Vitaly Kutsanelson, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today and especially uh, the idea that maybe the beginning of intelligent wisdom and managing money is to admit that you don't know what's going to happen and maybe others should do the same in order to uh, achieve some level of success such as you have. Uh, I do want to reference your book, The Little Book of Sideways Markets, which we will link to in the show notes. We'll also link to your very fascinating blog. Um, in which you address a wide range of subjects, both in and out of the world of ec economy and investing. But uh, in the meantime, I just want to thank you, Vitaly, so much for being with us. Thanks a lot. Robert, thank you very, very much. Really enjoyed it. That was my conversation with portfolio manager Vitaly Katzenelson, talking about how to make wise investments in an uncertain economy. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.